Connor Esiason, and you're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast presented by the Boomer Esiason Foundation and GunnerEsiason.com. This podcast series has been made possible by Vertex, Novartis, Digital Credit Union, and Atlantic Health. The views expressed on Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast are that of Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests, and not necessarily those of the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Nothing in this podcast series should be considered medical advice. Such advice can only be given by a physician who's experienced with cystic fibrosis. The Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests cannot be held responsible for any damage which may result from using the information on this podcast without the permission of your medical doctor. You're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast. All right, hey friends, it's Gunnar Esaias, and we're back for another episode of Breathe In. Uh, Tiffany, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm well. Um, so today we actually have several Californians on the I podcast. Know. There's three of you today. West Coast, West Coast. <laughs> hey. Some of our, uh, we have a bunch of sprint. Inter- we have two sprint interviews today, rather. Yes. Um, I don't know why I was going off on a weird tangent there, but we have two of them. So uh, mm-hmm. I did one with Danielle Mandela, and you did one with Clark Huddleston. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle's actually from Sacramento, and then I think Clark's from kind of close to like your close neck of the woods, right? Yeah, just in the Bay Area. Um, yeah. So yeah, pretty cool. Uh, I was actually in the Bay Area. Last weekend, so I it was know. definitely definitely a strong California connection uh, on this episode. Um, yeah. So, uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's throw it right to Danielle's interview. All right, I'm here with Danielle Mandela. She's 32 years old with cystic fibrosis from Sacramento, California. A filmmaker and comedy producer. Uh, Danielle, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, so you have a pretty awesome story that we have to get into. Uh, one that I certainly haven't, uh, one that I certainly haven't heard before. You are a uh, a living donor recipient, a living donor, and you received uh, lobes, right? So right. I uh, I want to get into this. You you have cystic fibrosis, and we, we've talked to a number of people who have transplant. Obviously, Tiffany has had a double lung transplant, but you received a transplant, but it wasn't uh, a full lung. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe your life with cystic fibrosis leading up to this uh, to this specific type of transplant? Sure. Yeah. I um, so I was pretty active uh, with with my CF until I was about maybe ten to twelve years old or so started taking its toll a little bit Uh um and so i started slowing down around then by the time i got into high school i was struggling but i was kind of maintaining around 50 percent lung function um and then all of a sudden in my junior year the summer afterwards just i went from 50 percent to like 13 just in in the span of like four or five months did they give you a reason why that you had such a crazy decline when you were 15 16 years old they didn't uh, know back then. Uh, some research now, just kind of aligning with what we did know then, it seems like maybe it was undiagnosed CFRD, uh, uh-huh. diabetes, that um, we know now can, if it's uncontrolled, can cause a sudden decline in lung function. It wasn't known back then, but I got diagnosed with the diabetes like a week before my transplant. Uh-huh. So I think that, that the two were related. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, okay. So now all of a sudden your your lung function kind of fell out. Um, you know what what happens there? Like, did you know? Was there talk of a transplant? Was there you know what what what, what kind of situation were you in? It was um, talked about. My doctor brought up transplant just so that it wouldn't sound shocking later on. He brought it up maybe a year previous to that when uh-huh. I was still doing okay. Um, but by the time I started declining, like I said, it was going so fast that, um, you know, the waiting list takes time uh-huh. and I, I didn't have that much time. Mm-hmm. And back then even the list was, um, first come first serve. Uh-huh. So it's not based on the allocation system that they have now, which is need based and they evaluate uh-huh. you and see who's worse off. Um, and so living in a bigger city, uh, California is a big state and then Sacramento is a fairly large, fairly large city. Um, I would have been way at the bottom of the list. It probably would have taken several years to get a transplant. Uh-huh. And I just, I couldn't do that. So we had to figure out something else. So, okay. So now, you know, I think, uh, we're kind of just like d- jumping right into this year. You, you know, <laughs> you, you have, uh, you know, you're, you're still pretty young at this point. You're, you're in high school for all intents and purposes. Um, and like you, you as a kid are faced with the really, really 
in, in some ways the inevitability of cystic fibrosis at that point in time. Right. Um, right. You know, what, what was that like to be going through as a kid? Um, I didn't feel like a kid for probably the last couple years, like 15, 16 um, it was a lot of time spent kind of just realizing I didn't relate to anybody around me mm-hmm. and just those kind of moments of sitting and thinking about all the stuff that I knew I would be missing. Um, just all the milestones that I wouldn't hit and uh-huh. how much more I had to think about than my peers. Like it uh-huh. really became that distance between what we experienced and what they experienced was the greatest it had ever been. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, now I guess uh at, at what point did you guys then decide to uh explore a living donor transplant or a live lobe transplant as some as some call it? I had uh been in the hospital probably for uh 3 weeks at that point and this is after doing home IVs. Um and I just was not improving um and it was I had a DNR signed like I had that talk with my doctor. Um and I had a really great pediatric pulmonologist, and he um, really was exploring every avenue. Even after he had talked to us and said, this is pretty much all I can do, he kept researching on his own um, as much as he could. And somehow he got connected with a somebody he went to med school with, who was now the, um, I think, director of the lung transplant program at Children's Hospital L.A., and so he called her and they talked to see what they could do. Um, and she happened to be working with the surgeon, Dr. Starnes, Von Starnes, who is kind of the grandfather, I guess, of the transplant procedure. And he was one of maybe two or three surgeons in the country doing the living donor transplant. Mm-hmm. So, so well, okay, so there's a lot. So, so there's something to dissect here. Let's pause. We'll go over it. So uh, you sign you sign a DNR. Do not resuscitate. Uh, you know, meet, you know, it's sort of like an end of life kind of thing. Uh, get, yeah, I mean, if, if for all intents and purposes, you were staring down, you know, your final your final moments the there. Yeah. Um, sure. Now, can can you talk to uh, us a little bit about like what a living donor lung transplant looks like? So a living donor, they take out my entire old set of lungs, just like a regular transplant. Um, So everything damaged and everything with CF is out. And then they replace it with one lobe each from two donors. Um, So there's a full set of lungs is three lobes on the right and two lobes on the left with room for your heart. Mm. Uh, So they just, but you can live on less than that if you need to uh-huh. so they took one lobe from each of my parents that's a part we can come back to that's a whole other <laughs> that's, okay, that, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's probably the biggest part of the story so yeah. uh okay so we'll get to that here in a moment yeah. but uh so for all intents and purposes you're you're taking one lobe from uh, each living person and mm-hmm. you personally are going to now survive on two lobes of some of, of other people's lungs am yeah. I, so is it, am, I, am i understanding that correctly so they try and pick donors that are um, significantly taller than the recipient just for size so they'll expand as much as possible. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so, 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 all right, so now, <laughs> so you, you kind of dropped the bomb here that your, your parents were your, <laughs> were your donors. Um, yes. And how, how did that come to be? Like, you know, what, what did they have to get tested? Like, you know, what, I really know very, very little about living donor transplant, as you can hear my voice um so what what uh uh let's, let's go there you know what uh, yeah what was the, what was the process to getting your parents on board with well obviously they're on board but what was the process to getting them uh signed up to do this so uh i got evaluated um for a transplant everything was expedited so what the testing that normally takes about five to seven days I think we rushed through in about a day and a half. At, at Children's Hospital um, LA or, or, in, Sacramento, or in Sacramento? A little bit of both. We started in Sacramento, and then I was life-flighted down to LA when they agreed to do it. And gotcha, we finished gotcha, up gotcha, there. gotcha. Okay, so, yeah. you, so, you, so you made through the, the evaluation, and then your, your parents had to do the same thing then, that's what right. imagine. As soon as we got down to LA, um, well, I should say before we left, um, my parents had a big family meeting. I have a huge family, so that helped a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, and they had a meeting and said, here's what we're looking at. We're going to need two donors. 
and they had a list of like 50 people that came forward and said yeah we'll test us we're up for it um so we brought that list with us to la and a lot of this is what they've told me a lot of that's fuzzy memories for me Uh but um so they brought the list to children's hospital Uh and they the doctors there cut the list immediately down to like seven people just by odds and and medical histories and um a lot of it was to do with i think the closer in relation they are to the recipient the better it's i mean they have no real science behind um proof that related donors will fare better in the recipient Uh but it it was a trend that they had kind of noticed so they were trying to bank on that Uh um so yeah immediately it was down to my parents my older brother who is healthy no cf and i think maybe three aunts and an uncle Uh um throughout that process we learned that i have a universal recipient blood type ab Uh positive so that helps eliminate one matching element um with lungs because you're not uh retaining any tissue you don't have to match a tissue so basically all in my situation all we needed to match was size and that the uh, donors were relatively healthy Mm-hmm. Um, so actually a better match than my dad would have been my older brother. Um, but he was only 18 at the time, just 18. And so they, part of the psychological evaluation of a transplant is they think about the ramifications of the decisions that everybody's making and whether that'll impact them or is likely to impact them negatively later on. Um, 18 is really young, so that's a huge decision. Uh-huh. So my my dad was healthy enough that they went with him instead of my brother. Uh huh. Um, so okay. So now now we'll pause. <laughs> we'll digest and we'll get you back on here. Now I guess. Uh, so at at this point, the, the 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 transplant team has selected your parents to be the donors. They they've matched your you know the, the blood type wasn't a concern because you're AB positive. They're, you know that's. I guess it's a huge thing, huge, um, yeah. and then that you know that just makes the you know, I guess the, the the donor pool is so much bigger is, is yes. what I, if, if I can imagine that correctly. And then um, you know I think like I, I want to know like at this point in time you know well and you you, you did say your, your memory was a bit fuzzy, but you know what were the conversations like with your family at this point? Did you were you did you know that this was going to happen that you're going to be using a living donor rather than uh, a deceased one like you know was that were you aware that was happening that was all discussed yeah i knew i would be getting a living donor i knew that my family was uh my immediate family was volunteering and getting evaluated uh-huh. i had no idea about the big meeting that took place with the extended family uh-huh. and, and um, i mean how did that make you feel like you know that's like we always talk about the support system in cf but like i mean that's like taken to another yeah. level i think yeah um it was a very as it was happening it was just um sort of methodical and just let's get it done this is the steps we need to take like anything else in cf like uh-huh. meet the immediate goal and then we'll digest it later uh-huh. um so as it was happening for me at least i can't speak to what my family was feeling but uh-huh. i was just uh all right let's check these things off the list and and go from there so you know now it's clear that your parents are the the ones to do it. You know what is the next step? I you know it, it sounds like it's already going in a very different direction than had you you know been working with the deceased owner. Like you know the the call is kind of like a mystic like a mystical like a mystical thing that happens for for people with CF on the transplant waiting list. Yeah. You know for you it's, it this seemed a lot more planned out and step by step, and everyone knew it was happening. There's no surprises. Um, yeah. You know what what was what was that like? It was, yeah, completely the opposite of waiting on the list. Uh, so we, we pretty much just, uh, once we had my donors, the um, director of the program just said, hey, all right, two weeks from now on a Thursday, we're doing this. <laughs> so, so we spent that time uh, just kind of doing another tune-up, uh, trying to pump my weight up as much as possible, just get me in really good shape for the procedure. Uh-huh. And now your, your parents on the other end, you know, h- how are they preparing? hanging out with us um setting up their support system for when after we all got out of surgery because that would leave them they had to be in the adult hospital so they were across town at usc um so they were uh, i think my dad was in for maybe a week my mom got out in a few days but that left me 
recovering with just my older brother and one of my aunts came down and stayed with him. So that's um, that's inter- that's an, a fascinating point that like this all didn't happen in the same place like that right. because you're a pediatric care you had to be in a pediatric hospital and Ooh. your parents had to be in an adult hospital. That's like that like to me that's like that doesn't make any sense. Like why can't everyone just be in the right. same place? Now did it all happen on the same day? Same day. So yeah. so your parents got you know wheeled in in the morning. The the lobes come out and then you go in like the the organs travel across town <laughs> and then and then and then you went under a few hours later I assume yeah um, it's that's one part that they usually get right on TV uh, they uh-huh. wait until the lungs were out of my parents uh-huh. and then they started working on me as soon as they were confirmed to be good and healthy uh-huh. uh huh so as soon as they started driving them across town is when they started working on me uh huh so I, I I guess the um now, now for you, what, what, what is different about being the recipient of lobes rather than a full lung? Like, you know, what I guess, what is the outcome of of a person who receives lobes instead of, instead of lungs? Um, so the biggest thing is that I never hit a hundred percent capacity like a lot of people will with a full set. Um, uh-huh. So I think the highest I ever got was like seventy five percent capacity. Uh-huh. Which is just physics. It just the volume wasn't there. I uh-huh. was expanding. They were working fine. It just wasn't as big. Uh-huh. Um, but the in air in to air out ratio was was good, and everything was working properly. Uh huh. So can can you explain a little bit why people can survive on you know in your case with just a sing, with with you know just two lobes rather than the full five? Um, it's the same reason I think that anybody with CF can survive uh-huh. with their old lungs just. You don't. I mean, it's great to have full capacity, but uh-huh. as we all know, we can live with a lot less. Uh huh. So um, I, I guess you know from from there, you know, what was the recovery like? So now you know you're the recipient of um, your, your lungs, from, lobes from your parents, and you're all kind of recovering together. Uh, yeah. You know what? I guess what 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 were those days like in the immediate aftermath of the transplant? Um, I was in the hospital for another, uh, 28 days or so. Uh Just, um, most of that was getting strength back, getting Uh my legs back in shape. Uh, When I went in, I couldn't even step up a curb without help. So I was Uh getting all that back. Uh Um, and then the other element was I had to, um, I was a teenager. So they were treating me like one, assuming that I was going to rebel when I got out of the hospital. Uh So it was a lot of mental training and uh, memorizing my medication list backwards and forwards. I had to recite it um, several times a day on demand, like uh, out of order. So they'd mix up the order in case I had memorized it. Like I had to know everything before I left. Um, And there was a a time of separating me from relying on my parents. Uh So uh, there's exercise required after a transplant. You got to get up and walk immediately. And then I had to do... I think they had me up to, I had to do like 90 laps a day around the ward before uh-huh. they let me out. And I had to do it alone. I couldn't bring my brother or my parents with me. Uh-huh. Um, and it was just breaking me from the habits of uh, relying on parents and getting into self-advocacy mode, uh-huh. um, which I hated at the time, but it was a huge, huge help. Now, that's that's fascinating for me to hear because I think a lot of time you hear people see when they go through transplant. For the most part, people are, you know, either, you know, Young adults or or adult age, it, it, it's not often that you hear of pediatric patients going through this. I mean, it does happen, right. but it's not it's not as no, quite as common. And you know, I think that's an interesting thing that you you know you don't hear whenever you know Tiffany tells her transplant story or any of the number of people who have been on the podcast talking about their stories of transplant that you don't hear the hospital you know hear how the hospital taught the person how to be a patient. You know, that's not mm-hmm. that's something that I think is. That, that that should be like mandatory training for like every patient. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Once I went through it, I was, yeah. Why didn't they have me do this when I was like eight years old? Uh-huh. I don't know. And but, uh, do you still lean on those so, skills that you learned? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially because everything is so, um, after transplant and after one like mine, nobody's an expert in it besides the person that did it. So mm-hmm. if I go to an ER, if I go to an urgent care, anywhere I go, I have to re-explain it to people and I have to uh, convince them that, yeah, I know you have your training and you're probably right in most cases, but in this one, you really have to listen to me because mm-hmm. the margin of error is very, very thin. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that I think is very, very important for 
not only transplant recipients, but also people with CF. Like, you know, you go to urgent care and, you know, the, the PA or the, or the doctor who's on call there at, at the urgent care is like, they probably learned about CF for one hour. Exactly. In, in like their you know first or second year of medical school, and they went into a different specialty, which is fine. But right. you know that it's just not something they're going to see quite often. So yeah. like I, that's a very valuable skill for you know certainly someone like you, but I think all of us as well. Yeah. Um, simply because it's the kind of thing where we had the experience with it, and we we do learn over time. Whereas you were forced to learn. You know, exactly. we forced to learn in a very short period of time. We have yeah. you know years and years and years and years of, of learning. Um, so now, you know, the, the interesting part about the living donor uh, lobe transplant is that they don't actually do it anymore. Uh, right. You know, why is that? Do you know why that is? Yeah, they stopped around uh, 2005, I think. Um, and the reason is because around that time, the UNOS waiting list, it changed from being first come, first served to the new allocation system. Mm. Um, so when it became more of a health priority list, uh, had it been that way when I was really sick, I would have been moved to the top immediately and time wouldn't have been as much of an issue. Uh-huh. Um, so that was enough of a change that most hospitals, um, well, all of them now, couldn't justify the risk of putting three patients under as opposed to one. Uh-huh. Um, so that it was it was mainly a risk-based decision. Gotcha. So now, you know, I, I guess <clears throat> that's an interesting thing because – like I understand that the the Hippocratic oath like works in several different ways, and like in some ways it actually does work against a patient in the sense that you know yeah. a hospital wouldn't be willing to perform a risky surgery uh, if there's very little chance of success. You know, in, right. in that kind of way, like in my opinion, at least the Hippocratic oath sort of does work against the patient. Um, yeah. But and so I, I understand what you're saying how they you know they, they don't want to put three patients at risk when in reality just doing a you know a, a traditional if there is such a thing transplant it's yeah. really only just one person is at risk in the whole process I mean you know how does that make you feel that they don't do them anymore is that is that, does that like cause frustration for you or do you feel like you're like part of the old guard you know what like what what is the emotion uh, in in that in that subtle fact it's mixed because for me. Um as a patient, it sucks. Like I wish other, other CF patients had that opportunity, Uh um, for, but then when I think about like, you know, my brother just waiting for his entire family to get out of surgery, not Uh knowing how it would go. I understand from that side too, why, Uh why doctors don't want to put, um, I mean, that's part of the Hippocratic oath too, is, is thinking of my brother during this Uh process. So I get all sides of it. It is frustrating especially 15 years later, knowing that uh, the odds of success, the risk is getting smaller and smaller, even with traditional transplants. Uh So as we improve with science, I would hope that the risk would go down and maybe they could bring it back as an option. Uh Uh-huh. That's an interesting point. You know, I think... You know, talking to somebody who who has gone through something that just isn't offered anymore is... It's it's not it's not every day that we get to do this, and you know right. it's not every day that you run into someone who has gone through something quite as amazing as you have, and to think that it was 16 years ago, you know that's just, yeah. which is also a crazy thing. Now yeah. I think with the the low, you know, were you under the impression that you know some of the risks post transplant were going to be different for you compared to somebody with a traditional tra- uh, organ transplant from from a deceased donor, or is it all kind of the same? I think it was the same. The bigger difference was um, risks between adult and pediatric transplants. Um, uh-huh. And I, I think I fared better. I think the, the, the younger you are in life, just with any injury, no matter what it is, you, when you're younger, you have a better chance of recovering well uh-huh. and bouncing back. Uh-huh. So. But that made like, a difference. But, but there's no like differences in like risk of rejection or, or things of that nature simply because it's coming from someone who's related compared to somebody who's not. Sure. Uh, well, I, I should say not all of them are from related donors. Uh-huh. Um, gotcha. There was a girl in the hospital right before I got mine. She was about three months out. And she, I think her dad and a neighbor uh-huh. who just heard their story had donated. Um, I don't know how she's doing now. Um that was a long time ago, but from the living donor transplants that I know about, a lot of them seem to have lasted longer than uh, deceased donors. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no studies, or so we don't know why. Gotcha, um, gotcha. It's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this is 16 years ago. This is two, twenty, you know, 2003. Um, you know, how has life been like? You know, since 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 all this happened. 
Really good. Um, I So my first few years out, I moved from Sacramento up to Humboldt State for a little bit to go to college, then down to L.A. for film school. Um, and for most of that time, it was like a good seven-year stretch where it was just a handful of pills in the morning, a handful at night, no treatments, no nothing. I pretty much got to live normally, which is more than any of us could ask for, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really cool. Um, to the point where I got to the point where I was, uh, um, almost not appreciating it uh-huh. <laughs> until, uh, some of that stuff started taking its toll and creeping uh-huh. back in and I had to slow down a little bit. Um, I was diagnosed with chronic rejection in 2017, mm-hmm. which, um, another thing they're learning a lot more about, um, it, it's, something that now is at least if not reversible we can kind of stall it Uh which wasn't always the case so that's what we're working on now is um just getting back into those old habits that i had lost so i do uh some breathing treatments not anywhere near the uh amount as before or the structure of it Uh um but just stuff to keep me clear and open and make sure i'm uh doing conditioning at the gym and stuff like that Uh uh-huh so I, I mean, I, sixteen years on, on on a set of dermologues is, is definitely a very, very, very good run. Uh, yeah. You know, what what do, what do you uh, sort of anticipate for yourself in the future? You know, are you still kind of, you know, I, I'm thinking things are going to be going pretty good, or you know, you, do you kind of always have have to sleep with one eye open as as many transplant recipients do? Always, always sleep with one eye open. Yeah, that uh-huh. never goes away. Um, but overall, I have a lot of hope. Um, I met UCSF is where I get treated now. Uh-huh. Uh, they're an amazing, amazing team um, on the cutting edge of a lot of stuff. Um, I Before I even started getting care there, I had heard their, the surgeon who, if I need a second transplant, would ultimately be doing it, Dr. Kukrasia. Mm-hmm. I've seen her speak. I've seen her techniques. She's definitely on the forefront. So I feel like I'm in good hands. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not looking forward to the waiting list process if I have to do it. That's a whole different game. Uh-huh. I I was most thankful for not having that uh-huh. uh, waiting for the call element. Uh-huh. I, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's, I mean, it sounds like you're doing pretty good, all things considered. And you know, I I do think that um, you know the 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 differences that you're describing between uh, you know some some of the, the quote unquote traditional transplant um, routes compared to what you went through is, is I mean it's like as wide as the Grand Canyon the differences are, yeah. are, are concerned but then there's also a number of similarities that you know I, you know I can hear you describe as well um, you know I, I do wonder if you have any advice for uh, you know some pediatric patients who may be you know either looking at a transplant or even if you have some advice for for their families who are also you know going through that together you know I think you know, transplant certainly a family affair for, for anyone who goes through it, but especially for somebody who's who's still a kid. Yeah. Uh, well, f- to the families, I would say just let go of any expectation of how you think anything should go. There's nothing like the transplant experience, um, which is what we were told before we went into it was we can't even prepare you. There's Until you do it, there's no explaining what it's like. Mm-hmm. So just go into it with an open mind and be ready to do a lot of work, mm-hmm. um, which is what I would tell patients, get ready for a lot of work. It's mm-hmm. a ton of work. It does pay off. Um, and when you think you're going to start feeling better, um, but there's still work to do, don't stop too soon because it, all of that stuff that you've done can go away really quickly if you don't follow protocol. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Danielle, this, this has been great. Uh, th- I want to say thank you again for, for sharing your story with the podcast. Um, is, is, there any, is there anything else you have to add? Uh, thank you for doing this podcast. It's awesome. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, we wish you all the best. Uh, we certainly um, are cheering for you. And uh, again, like I am just totally blown away by the fact that uh, you know we're here talking to a living donor transplant recipient. It's not uh, it's not every day that we get to do this, uh, especially on the podcast here. Um, so thanks for thank you again for sharing your story. Thank you. All right, I want to say thanks to Danielle for uh, for doing that. That was a crazy interview, hearing yeah. about uh, her experience with the living donor transplant, which is, I mean, as she said, something that they don't do anymore. So, uh, right, those, you know, those those people who've gone through that are few and far between. I I didn't even know they did that. To be honest, I saw it on the resident like not too long ago, <laughs> and I thought that was just. I didn't even think that was real, but they could do that because you know TV drama, Hollywood drama, but. 
to hear that. I didn't even know. That's um, crazy. Yeah, her story. Her story is pretty wild. Um, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm happy we got to share it in the podcast. Um, yeah. And uh, she she did tell me afterwards that if anyone else had you know for the questions for her we. You know, we could we could definitely uh, make the connection if yeah. so. Um, so now, uh, Tiffany, you had an interview as well. Yeah, I had it with Clark Huddleston, who actually we've known each other since he was a few months old, and I was probably like seven months old. We both went to the same CF clinic, so I'm really excited to have him on. So I hope you guys enjoy. Here's the interview. Hey guys, I'm with Clark Huddleston, who is 29 years old. And he's from the Bay Area, like me. We actually met, we don't even remember when we met, actually. We were only probably a couple months old for him. And I was probably, I want to say six months old or seven months old, I think. Yeah. So, Somewhere I, there, yeah. yeah. Hey, Clark, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to be here. And, yeah, I can't believe it's already almost been... 30 years of us being friends, so to speak. I know. I'm being be, on this planet. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to be 30 this Sunday. The I'm big three. Oh. Yeah. And Gunner calls me the grandma. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not a bad thing in it, the CF world, oh, right? Oh, you're exactly right. I always say that it's such an accomplishment. And I'm just very blessed to be here because. Yes. You know, after, like, when I was waiting for transplant, we didn't know how long I had. And then yes. I got those lungs, and I'm all good now. I'm doing great. Knock on wood. But, yes. <laughs> but let's talk about you and what um, your CF life is like. Sure. I mean, um, going on 30 as well, right behind you. Um, and uh, I guess I just grew up. Um, you know, my, my mom and my parents always really pushed me to be more involved in sports, to be more athletic, to, to kind of help with the CF. And, um, it, you know, it definitely worked. Um, I grew up playing all kinds of sports similar to, to a lot of other kids with CF. Uh, the physical activity definitely helps a lot. Um, but yeah, born and raised in the Bay Area, very close to yourself and um, been loving living here ever since. We got a great uh, CF healthcare system out here. Um, with lots of support, so it's always good to have in your backyard. Um, and just, you know, been working a lot uh, in my 20s here, approaching 30, and um, I've had, you know, the good good luck of having a few cool jobs um, that have taken me, uh, you know, around the country and getting to travel. Um, and for me, that was, you know, a big part of my life with CF was getting to, to experience some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, having good fortune enough to, to um, you know, have the health to allow it. I've been pretty lucky on the CF side uh, as far as, as health goes. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I, I always was envious of you with your work because you worked in the music festival kind of industry. And I thought that was yeah. so cool that you got to travel everywhere and see all these artists and um you did a lot of edc stuff and yeah. a lot of um country festivals and i think you even went overseas a lot of the time yeah i did i did get a chance to go overseas a couple times and um you know i kind of got into that um just out of my passion for, for music and you know i really firmly believe that everybody in life should should find a passion that they love and try to pursue it as a career, so to speak, but mm-hmm. even more so, um, you know, with CF and I, I know, uh, other people with CF can attest to this, that when, uh, you find something that you really love, you kind of latch onto that. Um, when there's so much, you know, negative, uh, stuff that comes along with CF, um, it's kind of nice to, to ride the wave of something positive. So I, uh, had some good luck and met some good people and, mm-hmm. um, kind of led me in the right direction for these jobs that got to take me all over the place. And, I uh, get to, you know, set up and work events that I would normally go to myself mm-hmm. as a as a patron, but um, actually got to be on the, you know, the other end and work it and set these events up for other people. That's so cool. How was it traveling all this this way? I know you were, at one point, you were gone mostly every weekend. And how yeah. did you handle cystic fibrosis while you were traveling? <laughs> Uh, it was not easy. That's for sure. Um, 
trying to keep up with all my medicine and and um, being on the go a lot. It's difficult, and it definitely uh, put me to the test of several times. Um, coming back, and my body's like, "What are you doing? Why are you <laughs> out at this festival in 105 degrees for a week and doing all this stuff?" Um, but I definitely, you know, really had to try to listen to my own body. Mm-hmm. Um, manage my my treatments and my medicine and um, you know there were plenty of times where I you know had to say hey I can't go on this one or I need to stay home or I'm not feeling too great today I can't go out there Um, you know it comes with the territory and um, you know others with CF know um, all all that stuff pretty well some days you're just not feeling up to it um, you know, you catch a cold and it turns into something bigger. Totally. So, yeah, it was definitely hard on the road. Um, and I appreciated coming home even more so, but it was still a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, to- I'm sure that's, that's yeah. a lot. I know even for me going even post transplant, just going for a weekend somewhere, it's so yeah. hard on my body yeah. still. So, and I knew pre-transplant, it was hard for me to do something on the weekend, just even if it was at home. So totally, totally hard for someone with CF to go and do all that. But that's awesome that you were able to do all that. It's so great. And um, so while you were on the road and did you ever tell your employers that you had cystic fibrosis or were you were you transparent about it or like how did you handle that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, I've always just, as a person, uh, been kind of closed off with telling people about my CF just for, that's how I am, you know, I kind of keep it to myself, mm-hmm. tell people when needed, and mm-hmm. um, there were plenty of times where I would go out to an event, and I, I would, would go into it knowing that I wasn't feeling too great, mm-hmm. so I would just have to be up front with somebody, you know, whoever I'm working with, be like, hey guys, this is the situation, um, because you really have to do it to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're ever in any situation at home or away on the road somewhere, uh, you got to look out for yourself first. So, it, you know, in certain instances, I would definitely be upfront with people and mm-hmm. let them know, um, you know, what's going on. This is why I'm coughing so much. I'm not contagious. <laughs> I'm just doing, doing my own thing, you know, uh-huh. um, hacking away over here. But, um, there's definitely times where, you know, I was feeling good and I, you know, um, felt like, I felt like I could run a mile, which in CF world, that means a lot. Um, but, and, you know, so I just kept it to myself and did my work, but, um, you know, I, as a person, I'm pretty closed off with, with, uh, how much info I give out about CF. Um, that's, like I said, that's just kind of the way I am. Um, but definitely in certain situations, just to have the people around you aware of, of what's going on and the possibility that, hey, I might need to sit down or lay down for a minute because I'm not Mm -hmm. feeling too great. So it's important as well. Yeah, totally. And I I know that like being transparent about CF is really hard for a lot of people. And I'm really happy you're on the podcast today to talk about it, which I really appreciate. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And so when you were... when you were doing these jobs, I know that the portable vest was not available. And I know that the regular vest is huge, but from prior conversations that we have, because me and Clark talk pretty frequently, um, he says that he doesn't prefer the vest. For me, yeah, for for me, the vest, I have never been a fan of the vest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as far as my chest, my lungs go, it doesn't really do... Mm-hmm. the job I feel it should do. I could sit there for an hour, yeah. two hours, and it would just not really get the work done. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last thing I wanted to do on the road was lug that thing around with me. Mm-hmm. And I still haven't gotten to try the new, you know, cordless, mm-hmm. the cool one that's yeah, yeah. like everybody's raving about. Yeah. Exactly. I haven't gotten to try that one yet. Yeah. I might be open to it. You know, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. It um, might work better but, for you. Yeah. So for me, I've always just really worked with um like the flutter the acapella Mm -hmm. um those kind of just little easy portable devices Mm -hmm. um one thing that i've really really gotten into too is jump roping oh wow um it's kind of like a yeah surprisingly it's like a really good cardio 
Um, also, you're just jumping in place, so it's just shaking up, uh, you know, the lungs and stuff like that. Um, so for me, that's kind of been the best, the best uh, therapy for my lungs instead of uh, the vest. Mm-hmm. Even though I still do use it because it's, you know, doctor prescribed and I got to do my thing. But <laughs> um, more so, I try to try to involve those other therapies mm-hmm. to kind of clear my uh, airways out. Yeah, I remember exercise is probably one of the best CPT methods that you can do for sure and I know we had um, Karen on the podcast who is a physical therapist and she said you know exercise is really important so if you can do it do it because even if it's the littlest thing it's so important to get and it loosens all of it I feel like when I was you know pre-transplant and I was feeling pretty good um, I would go to Zumba and come mm-hmm. back, and it was all loosened up, and then I would strap on the vest and do a treatment, and then yeah, I would be able up. to get it all up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just, like, having all those things, and I have the flutter. I think we got that flutter back in. Yeah. I don't even... <laughs> it was back when we were in pediatrics, for sure, and me and Clark went to the same pediatrics um, cl- CF clinic, so, yes. um, and I actually went back, Clark, and they have our pictures out. still out mm-hmm. and there. We still, they have the pictures of us still up there literally from over what? Oh, it's probably like 15 years now. 15 years. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Still I'm up flying. there. Me and you next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny, but we were before the vest, it was the flutter. Yeah, that yeah. was what we did. I, I think I'm on. Uh, I think it's called the aerobica now. Yeah, I is the one that I use, the white one. Yeah. Um, but that that seems to to get me good. I'm able to do that in the car on the way to work, mm-hmm. um, which I really I really try to do a lot since I'm sitting in that barrier traffic all the time. Oh um, my god. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, yeah. So it works for me. You know, the vest just. I'm not going to knock it too much because I know it works for a lot of people, oh, yeah. but. For for me, it just you know it's finding your your best routine and mm-hmm. and what works best for you. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, we yeah. all are different. Every case of CF yes. is different. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's that's what's important is finding what's best for you. So, some days you're you're not going to be able to go out and you know jog or jump mm-hmm. rope or do things like that. So it's mm-hmm. totally okay to sit down and strap the vest on. Yeah. And I, yeah, like you said, there's days like you are sick and you can't go work out, but it's at least you have something to do, um, to loosen it up. So did you, when you were on the road, did you like have a problem getting time away to do treatments or were, was it pretty easy to just go back and it yeah not usually because it it, you know it wasn't like a typical job you're not at a desk nine to five you're Mm -hmm. you're out on the road and there's plenty of times to kind of get away and Mm -hmm. and handle my my stuff when I needed to Mm -hmm. um which was good you know it's super flexible and and manageable at that aspect of it Mm -hmm. yeah I would think that being on the road you can just like take a break and go do what you need to do and then go back which was really nice because like you said a nine-to-five job it's kind of hard to be in the middle of a meeting and need to leave and stuff and now I know you do work pretty much yeah now now I've switched over yeah and I am on the nine-to-five life so how's that compared to the other it's, it's actually, you know, approaching 30, it's not too bad. <laughs> um, all the traveling and stuff was fun when I was a little bit younger and, and feeling better, but I'm definitely uh, feeling my age these days. Mm-hmm. So getting kind of like the more steady schedule um, and kind of a daily routine is a lot better for me mm-hmm. now at this point in my life. And, you know, I'm able to get my treatments in. Okay. In the morning, um, I've gotten on the Toby pod hailer, which is really cool. Cause oh. I can take that pretty much anywhere yeah. and it takes like a minute to do the mm-hmm. whole treatment, which is awesome. Right. Um, so I've been a big fan of that and I'm hoping that more of the inhalation medicine goes towards that, mm-hmm. um, you know, non-refrigerated, easy to use anywhere kind of, uh, format because mm-hmm. it's super helpful and, um, hoping that, you know, these other, awesome drugs that are in the pipeline, mm-hmm. um, can help that even more. 
yeah, I'm really excited to see what it's going to do for the whole community and hopefully you. And, you know, I know it's 90% of the community, it said. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really, that's a big step. And I know that yeah. it's going to do a lot of good for our community and just help start help start seeing what we can do for the other 10 percent yeah absolutely it's like all those all those years of walkathons we've done it's finally working you know (laughs) exactly you know all those 30 years of doing everything and our moms and just doing everything your mom's such a big advocate yeah shout out Tomorrow. Shout out to the moms too. I have to shout out to the moms. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, CF is is just as much a caregiver's disease as it is a patient disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I definitely would not be here right now if it wasn't for my mom. And she's yeah. done so much. You know, it's just after Mother's Day for this. So yeah. shout out to the moms, <laughs> big time. Yeah. yeah. Well, Clark's mom's always there to support and be such yes. a CF advocate, which we love. So, hi, Mara. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know you have a sibling that does not have CF. So yeah. That's, yeah, I do. Younger brother. Yeah. So, how is it um, having having a brother growing up? I'm sure it was hard for him to see you go through everything. So, how is that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's never... Uh, you never know how it is unless you're in those shoes. So I'm sure, you know, for him, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, probably wondering why I had to do all these treatments all the time and yeah. this and that. And uh, he never, he's never really been to a doctor's appointment with me mm-hmm. um, in all these years. But, um, you know, that definitely kind of explains a lot. If, if you ever get to go to a, a doctor's appointment with a CF patient, you'll see a lot of what goes into you know the whole shebang yeah um but but with the younger brother you know it's he's always been supportive and he's come out to the walkathons and he's always you know understood uh it's a little harder for me to do things normally you know sports and stuff like that but um yeah He's always supportive. That's oh, what brothers are for. He's right? a great brother. He was at the yeah. the CF walk when you weren't there. I know, I know. Clark he, was, he was not the there this make. year. <laughs> he could not I make know. it. But his brother was there. So he's great. It was, yeah. it was cool to Got see. Got a big big support system, which yes, is awesome. Yes, you do. You had a nice big team yeah. there every year. And yeah. it's great to have it's really important to have that support system. I'm sure you Definitely. you know that. And yes. to have someone there to really um hold your hand in a in a sense to through this really hard life we live. But we're yep. always positive yep. about it because you, can't, you have to you be can't, yeah, you can't have to be positive. Can't let it get you down. Never. Gotta and be positive. Yeah. You can do whatever you put your mind and, and you're definitely the best uh, spokesperson for being positive with CF. I can't believe all the stuff you've been through. And, you know, I, since we were little kids, I've always been a big fan and friend of yours. And I really uh, admire you for all you've been through on your end. Well, thanks. You're so yeah. sweet. Well, it was nice to have you there all the time, too, because I knew someone yeah. else had it with me and I wasn't alone especially before yeah, social yeah. media even became a thing that we could meet other people I had you and you're the only other person with CF that I knew um, yeah and we live so close together yeah so yeah. it was you know it's you're like a brother to me so it's like yeah. likewise yeah okay well I'm gonna let you have the last word to say whatever you want to because we're running out of time but Oh boy! Yeah. So. Oh boy. <laughs> Whatever you um, want to say. I don't know. I didn't really pre- prepare any closing statements, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, from from a CF standpoint, we've come leaps and bounds from where we've been, and I encourage you know anybody out there with CF listening, um, any uh, hope that might be coming your way with these new awesome drugs and therapies and things. Uh, hang on because we've been waiting a long time for all this to come through um, and it's finally uh, gaining some progress and um, hopefully you know sooner than later um, we'll be talking about a different uh, you know life with CF uh, a lot better and a lot 
uh, easier for everybody. So uh, keep the positivity going like we talked about. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, get thank, out there. Yeah. Do, get to some CF events and support. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for coming on, Clark, and being yeah. so transparent because I know it's uh, you don't do it very often. So. Yep, not very <laughs> often. You got a lot out of me. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and thanks for being such a great friend and no a follower of the podcast. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. Listen every week. Well, thank you. and Of course. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. All right, a big thanks to Clark for joining the podcast. Um, another another great uh, CF Awareness Month episode. Another yeah. uh, another good episode where we get a number of voices uh, going in the podcast. Uh, we you know we did we did some polling uh, about a week or two ago, and it sounds like most of our listeners do enjoy these kinds of episodes. So uh, yeah. the plan is we'll keep these going for the rest of the month of May, and then mm-hmm. uh, maybe we'll bring them back uh, at some point later in the year. Uh, also, to address some housekeeping before we let you go, um, we did some polling as well on YouTube, as as our listeners, you must obviously know. <laughs> we uh, discontinued the YouTube use uh, a few yeah. weeks ago. It was giving us some problems, and... Uh, uh, really, like less than ten percent of our listenership was on YouTube, so yeah. it, it didn't really make sense to keep it going. However, uh, there was some limited interest to bring it back. Um, we're mm-hmm. also going to work on expanding the podcast to some other podcast uh, platforms out there, just beyond uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I was actually shocked to see the number of people who do listen on on uh, Spotify, you which know, is such a new yeah. uh, such a new uh, uh, platform for us. Yeah, a lot of people do that. I know Jeff listens on Spotify because uh-huh. he is not—he's not an iPhone holder. He's not—he's not the <laughs> he iPhone fan. He doesn't have the iPhone. He's one of those anti-iPhone. <laughs> and I, I know my my parents love watching us on YouTube, so hopefully we can figure that out. But, yeah. So I think yeah. um, for those of you who uh, are wondering what the the future of the podcast, as far as YouTube is concerned, we're we're still in a little bit of a holding pattern there, just kind of looking yeah. at some stuff on our end. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we will definitely be expanding uh, the audio portion yeah. of the podcast too, expanding to some other pro- uh, platforms here within the coming weeks. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Uh, mm-hmm. For some reason, you don't like listening on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, <laughs> we can, we'll get you somewhere else. Well, um, <laughs> but uh, that's a great segue into the end portion of the podcast where you can listen to us now on SoundCloud, Spotify, yeah. and iTunes. And if you are listening on iTunes, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars yes. if you're going to give us a rating. Nice. Um, and, of course, you can follow us on Instagram. That's uh-huh. breathe underscore in underscore pod on Instagram. It's also our email address, breathe underscore in underscore pod at esiason.org. Um, that's Tiffany Rich, Salty Sisters. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will see everyone next week. Bye.